Hello, and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton de France. Today we consider Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Well, it's good to be back and recording again. It's been a little while since we were with you last. We're excited to get back into our study in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 7. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word." And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. In our last studies, we've seen the infant community of Jesus' followers withstand the potentially devastating attacks of persecution from without and hypocrisy from within. And against both, we were met with the constant refrain, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly and many were added to the Lord. The true church of Jesus Christ is built on the foundation of his deity and messiahship, supported by the witness of the apostles to his glorious resurrection, and directed by the perfect guidance of the spirit of truth in the apostles' teaching. And that gives it the strength to survive and to thrive where the movements of men would quickly come to nothing. We see this in the early church, especially considering the intrinsic instability of this group of people, mostly made up of poor travelers who had come to Jerusalem months before and were dependent on the charity of others for survival, yet nothing seemed capable of stopping them. However, the devil is always at work and always searching for weaknesses to exploit. And as one said, those who watch only for giants may be eaten by ants. Sometimes the greatest threats are not large and external, but seemingly small and rising from among ourselves. So beginning in verse 1, Luke says, Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint. The word complaint means that there was a murmuring and grumbling among the people. When we saw the situation involving Ananias and Sapphira, we noted the similarity to the incident with Nadab and Abihu in the early days of Israel's history after they departed from Egypt. If there was a point of similarity to Israel's experience there, this is all the more so. 
In 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 11, grumbling and complaining are two of the sins of Israel, which, according to the Apostle Paul, caused God to become displeased with them and led to most of them dying in the wilderness and, according to his own record, caused Moses to become so overcome with despair when he tried to lead them that he prayed for God to kill him too. We should not underestimate, then, the destructive power, the extreme destructive power that something like this can have. It caused the Israelites to foolishly pine for their days as slaves in Egypt. Perhaps the same thing was happening here. Perhaps some of these Christians were saying, you know, we were better off before. These people talk about love, but they really only love themselves and their own kind. You expect this from the world, but the truth is the world treats us better than our brethren. Have you ever heard Christians talk that way? Have you ever talked that way? It's very dangerous. James, the brother of Jesus, served as an elder in Jerusalem, and perhaps he thought about this incident and the near ruin that it brought to Christ's people when he wrote in James chapter 5 and verse 9, Do not grumble against one another, brethren, lest you be condemned. Now there is one possible difference here. Israel was complaining against God, and their complaints were completely unjustified. But in this case, Luke says the complaint was against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. The Hebrews would be the Judean Jews who spoke the Hebrew language and lived according to the strictest social conventions of their historical people. And the Hellenists were those who lived abroad, also called Diaspora Jews. They spoke Greek, and they had adopted several Grecian customs and ways of thinking. There was certainly a difference here that could often manifest itself in prejudice and partiality. And perhaps that's precisely what had happened. Again, it may be with a view to this situation that James spoke his stern and fiery words against the utter wickedness of partiality in the church. He said in James chapter 2 and verse 1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. Verses 8 through 9. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. The accusation was that the Hebrew Jews, who evidently saw to the work of distributing charity to the poor among the saints, who are particularly represented here by the widows, were not giving, or at least were not giving adequately, to those poor who came from a Hellenistic or Diaspora background. Now, Luke does not tell us whether the complaint was just, or if so, how the neglect was manifest. Regardless, the whole situation was destructive. And while McGarvey is probably correct to say that it is too much to suggest a total break in the fellowship of the church at this moment, one could easily have followed were it not for the interposition of divine wisdom. Verse 2, Then the twelve, that is, the apostles, summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. One of the difficulties associated with this account, and in fact with 
almost all of the accounts of the church in Jerusalem between Acts chapters 1 and 8 is how we should take phrases like the multitude of the disciples. A common conception of the Jerusalem church at this time is that there was only one congregation composed of around 20,000 members and that until this event, the only officers in the church were the apostles themselves, and they did everything in the administration of the body. I believe that both of these suggestions should be rejected for several reasons. First, a first-century Jerusalem megachurch, as we would call a congregation of 20,000, is an anachronism. That is, it imposes a modern concept on an ancient context where it just does not fit. 20,000 members would be roughly the size of Rick Warren's Saddleback Community Church, which has nine domestic campuses and four international campuses. Its main campus auditorium can only seat a little over 3,000 people, so it has to have several successive assemblies in several locations to accommodate that crowd even today. If you think about Joel Osteen's Lakewood Church, the largest church in America, even that auditorium can only seat a little bit more than 16,000 people at a time. So how do we suppose the more than 20,000 disciples in Jerusalem met in a single assembly? If they were a single congregation, that's what they would have done, because that's how the apostles taught churches to assemble, according to 1 Corinthians 11.20 and 14.23. The modern custom of multiple campuses and of live-streaming sermons was, of course, not an option. And the modern practice of multiple assemblies for the different members of the congregation throughout the day is not how the apostles organized churches. Speaking of the apostolic organization and method, there are other practical issues here. How could the disciples in a crowd of this size share one loaf and one cup in the Lord's Supper. We know that was the practice of the ancient Christians from the time of Jesus onward. So we would have to assume that they violated their own teaching in order to accommodate this massive group. That's an assumption that I don't believe it would be appropriate for us to make. Where would they have assembled? Some people suppose they met in the temple, But even if the temple could accommodate such a crowd, the temple authorities barely allowed the apostles to preach there. Do we really suppose they would tolerate full-blown worship assemblies, complete with the Lord's Supper and giving and singing? The more likely arrangement is that the 20,000 disciples in Jerusalem formed multiple congregations, likely hundreds of them, which met for worship and edification and prayer in private homes. We could easily conceive of around 400 house congregations throughout Jerusalem and its outlying districts. Of course, we don't really know. It's sort of like the question, where did Cain get his wife? The question, how were the Christians in Jerusalem organized, is one that the Spirit of God does not answer explicitly in the book of Acts. However, whatever assumptions or inferences we make, they must accord with logic and with the teaching of the other scriptures that are plain and direct, and this would lead us away from the megachurch concept. But that brings us to the second conception, which is also problematic, that these 400 congregations were exclusively governed by the apostles. 
Now, most modern churches of 1,000 or more members have more than a dozen elders, and they still complain that the work exceeds what can possibly be accomplished by such a small group. One preacher at a congregation of that size told me that he did not think less than 20 could do the job effectively. If a group of 1,000 requires 20 shepherds, do we suppose that 20,000 were being led by only 12? It's much more likely that the apostles were organizing the house churches and even appointing elders and deacons to serve in them. Many scholars believe that the young men who buried Ananias and Sapphira were the deacons of that congregation. There must have been someone doing this sort of work from among the Hebrew Christians because the complaint was against them, not against the apostles. If we're correct about all of this, then we should imagine hundreds of local churches throughout Jerusalem, each being frequently visited by the apostles, who would impart spiritual gifts among the members and appoint elders and deacons to lead the flock. In Acts chapter 6 and similar records, we have a close-up view of one such group. So the multitude of the disciples would not be every Christian in Jerusalem, but the congregation where the complaint was being raised. So they summoned the multitude of the disciples, and they said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. The work of the apostles is called the ministry of the word of God. Their primary function as apostles was bearing witness to the life of Jesus, testifying to his resurrection, and revealing the things that he was teaching them by the Holy Spirit. And because no one else could do this, they reasonably said that someone else should be selected to serve tables for the widows. It's not particularly clear whether they refer here to the work of providing food for the widows, or if they referred to the many table where the funds were distributed. But here's the point. The apostles were not advocates of the modern social gospel. They did not believe that the chief end of the Christian faith was the eradication of poverty and hunger in the present system of things. They understood that the propagation of the truth was essential for the good of the world, and nothing else could supersede that. However, they did not deny that feeding the hungry was a good and noble work and a real expression of the kingdom of Christ in the world, so they gave a divinely inspired solution to settle the problem. Verses 3 through 6, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. There are several things that need to be noted about this incident. First, there is a great deal of controversy, what it seems to me, senseless controversy, over whether or not to call these men deacons. The word used to describe the work they do is the verb form of the noun deacon, so it seems unnecessary to deny them this title. Furthermore, it seems unnecessary to even call them proto-deacons, as some do, because, as we've already noted, there were likely 
several deacons and even elders in Jerusalem among the churches by this time. In this scene, we have a detailed glimpse of the process of selecting and appointing church officers. Note first what was not the system. These men did not come and notify the congregation that they had received an extraordinary call of God into the ministry. Nor did the apostles simply select and appoint them, nor did the people vote them in on the basis of preference and popularity. From Old Testament times and consistently on into the practice of the apostles and the early Christians, the system for selecting and appointing church officers includes four components. Number one, an elector. Number two, a facilitator. Number three, candidates. And number four, witnesses. If time permitted, we could see this system in the selection and appointment of the elders who assisted Moses in judging Israel, Exodus 18, 13-26, of Joshua to replace Moses as a leader of the people, Numbers 27, 12-23 of the Levitical priests, Numbers 8, 5-22, of Matthias to replace Judas as an apostle, Acts 1, 15-26, of Saul and Barnabas to preach and serve as missionaries among the Gentiles, Acts 13, 1-3, and of the elders and evangelists in all of the early congregations, Acts 14, 23, 16, 2, and 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 14. Now it's important to understand that in this system, the elector is always God. That is, God is the one who chooses who will serve him in an official capacity. Sometimes he makes this choice directly by naming the individual. Sometimes he makes it generically by giving qualifications. The latter is generally the method when it is an office that will continually be filled throughout the years by several people. The facilitator is an earthly representative who ensures that God's decision is honored by teaching the people who it is that God has chosen, generally by explaining the qualifications. The candidates are those who are put forth as options based on the assumption that they meet the qualifications, and then the people function not as constituents to vote, but as witnesses who examine the candidates in light of God's revelation and testify that either they do or do not fit God's election. Now, in this passage, God makes the choice that those who cared for the ministration to the widows must be seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. These qualifications were reasonable. A good reputation is essential for a man to be trusted with money, Wisdom would ensure that by careful conduct he avoided any further appearance or practice of partiality. The expression full of the Holy Spirit can refer to one who received the gifts of the Spirit from the apostles. That may be the meaning here, but it may also simply refer to one who manifests the fruit of the Spirit. That is, a man who is fully converted to Christ and who exhibits Christian character in his life. And this fits, I think, more with the context as well as with the later qualifications given for deacons in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8-13. through 13. The apostles were the facilitators who taught and explained the will of God to the people. The candidates, Stephen, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, 
were identified by the people as men possessing the character which God revealed as his choice for who should do this work. Not only were these men Hellenists and therefore could help remove the concern of partiality against the Grecian widows, but Luke says they testified that Stephen, and by extension the others, were full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. By setting them before the apostles, praying and laying hands on them as a public testimony. From this time forward, they would consider these men as those whom the Holy Spirit had made servants to perform this task, Acts 20 and verse 28. And this is precisely the way that officers should be selected for congregations even to the present day. The Bible says that when the apostles explained this system, the saying pleased the whole multitude because it was God's solution and it perfectly resolved the problem. Let it be understood that God's system meets our needs. When we fail to practice the apostolic pattern, we find our lives, even our service to God, filled with problems that have no solutions. Here was victory again. The crisis was averted. And thus verse 7 picks up the familiar chorus. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That last point is absolutely remarkable. As McGarvey observed, the tide of success had now reached its flood, and this was signaled not so much by the great number of converts as by the fact that among these was a great company of priests. The peculiar relation which the priesthood sustains to any religion must always render the priests the chief conservators of the old forms and the most persistent opponents of revolutionary changes. When they begin to give way, the system which they have upheld is ready to fall. No fact previously recorded by Luke shows so strikingly the effect of the gospel on the popular mind in Jerusalem. Luke describes the conversion of these priests with the expression, they were obedient to the faith. That is, the same as to say, they not only believed the gospel, but they were baptized to have their sins forgiven, as Jesus had commanded to all creatures of every nation, priest or prostitute, Hebrew or Hellenist, and the kingdom continues to spread. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is part of the Growing Biblical Studies program of Tulsa. To learn more, visit our website, bspoftulsa.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and obey, trust and obey, for the 